Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Buddhang damang sanggang namasami So here we are, and this for me is still very new territory. As most of you know, I've uh, basically just arrived a few days ago from a very distant part of the world, from <laughs> the old world as it's called, and um, so I'm still consider myself in the process of settling in. Maybe also today speaking to you, addressing you helps me a little bit more to settle in, which also means, of course, to connect with people and uh, to eventually then have the sense of, ah, yes, I have, I've arrived, I've finally arrived, 100%, not just 80% or 90%. So when Ajahn Viradamo today approached me after lunch, he came over to my room and he, he actually said uh, he wanted to invite me, and then he made a po- little pause. <laughs> and for a moment I thought, oh, where are we going to go next, you know, after yesterday's outing? But then it dawned on me there was a certain tone in his voice which indicated as a different kind of invitation. So the invitation then was, of course, uh, if I would be willing to give a, a Dhamma talk. Uh, I hesitated for a moment or two, because <laughs> I didn't expect that. And then, of course, it was quite obvious, yes, of course I do very happily, because uh, I felt so welcomed here by the monastic community, but also by all of you who um, are very kind of, are here, very staunch supporters, but one doesn't have to hear this, I can see it, I can feel it, that you're very much behind us, (laughs) and it's a very good feeling to have in in a place like this, in a monastery. And so, of course, then uh, my next uh, train of thoughts was going in the direction what to talk about, which is always a bit of a dicey issue, because there's so many topics one could pull out of the hat, so to speak, and I don't want to do that just by chance to pull anything out of the hat. I don't have a hat, actually. So So (laughs) what would be, of course, the question then is what would be helpful, what is suitable, what is appropriate, what resonates with you, the lay community, but also resonates with my fellow monk friends here. And so, um, as you probably also know, we have this, uh, maybe we could call call it a convention, um, where Dhamma talks usually are supposed not to be prepared in detail. I must say, actually, over the years, I've actually gone off that... um, (coughs) Um, convention uh, quite often actually and I've actually even sometimes had papers lying in front of me and you know picking out little Dhamma quotes or sort of text and so forth and and really had a very detailed plan of what uh, I'm going to talk about especially when there's a retreat and you have a certain way you want to proceed with a certain theme on the retreat but tonight uh, I really there's only one thing which um, 
came to mind, which was the, the issue of conventions, as I'm talking about convention, the convention of giving Dhamma talks off the cuff, so to speak, um, which is a challenging thing for the best of monks, <laughs> the best speakers even, <laughs> for me in particular. So uh, I try my best to, this is almost off the cuff, not quite, because I thought of talking about the significance of conventions in, in our particular setup, in our particular tradition. And uh, this, uh, this convention, Theravada Buddhism, then the sub-convention is the forest tradition, the sub-sub-convention is within the Lompocha tradition, as it's now called, or Sangha, the uh, observances and practices which are maintained within the main monastery, Wat Nompapong, and also the branches in Thailand, and also, of course, the conventions followed overseas. And I've noticed that these conventions are not etched in stone, even though some people would like it to be like that. I've certainly noticed they're not etched in stone, they are actually changing. Not, of course, the, the basic structure and the fundamental structure, which, of course, is the, the rules and the discipline of uh, our monastic code of conduct. It's kind of, I've actually seen them etched in stone in Burma. They have a whole huge yard with these, uh, maybe Ajahn V has also visited when he was in Burma. It's in, in Upper Burma where they actually have the whole Suttapitika and Vinaya literally chiseled in stones, in white stone. Looks like big gravestones. And of course this is a done, I'm just imagine the task to do that, as what a kind of conviction and devotion has to be behind this, to do this. And of course it, it's coming out of a spirit of veneration, of appreciation for this ancient tradition which we have inherited. But then, of course, another question is always, well, how do we take this convention into our li life, in our daily life? How do you apply it? Is it really, even in our minds, etched in stone? Or is there some agility, some flexibility possible, how we use the conventions, even when it's coming to the observances of our monastic discipline? And I certainly, especially now, as, I'm, uh, as you've heard, I've... Uh, put down my duties as the abbot and senior monk of a monastery and I spent the first half year since leaving in an Italian monastery which is of course belongs to the same family as the monastery I was living there for over 20 years but I could even see then going there I could see slightly certain ways of doing things certain rhythms and the routines and so forth those conventions are very flexible and in a way, I really appreciate that each of our monasteries are in themselves quite autonomous. You know, we can decide. We don't have to always consult the Pope, the Buddhist Pope, or the Cardinals. When we want to make little changes or in our routine and our observances, we can decide amongst ourselves. Of course, we're always in a community. We're encouraged to uh, consult the others. Also, the abbot is not supposed to be, you know, mini-pope in his own monastery <laughs> and put the clamps down and says, you follow me and shut up, be mindful. But uh, we usually consult others. Well, how about if we do it like this? How about if we change the routine to actually also train all the, the members of the Sangha in developing that kind of agility of heart of mind which is not so dependent 
on conventions. In other words, we're not starting to cling to conventions. It shouldn't change because if it does change, I start to feel very insecure and very afraid that I'm losing something very valuable. No, it's not. Really, it doesn't have to be like that, because it's all written out. The texts are there. The references are there. We can consult our elders and other monks when we want to have some unclarity in a certain area of the convention. And so, um, if we notice that if changes are applied in a monastery, in the routine or the way of doing things, and one reacts with a sense of fear and agitation, then rather than maybe blaming uh, the senior monk or whoever is responsible for having done these changes, maybe we could look at ourselves. What is my attitude towards conventions, the conventional reality of things in a monastery? And so that would, I would suggest, be a wise approach rather than um, projecting it outward and and um, saying, well, it shouldn't be this way, it should always be how I want it to be or how it's always been, according to my perceptions, of course. But I'm used to what I, uh, how I expect the conventions to be and to stay forever and ever and ever. And so, of course, we are nowadays under a particular challenge as Buddhist traditions, as our tradition, all traditions, are moving into the Western world. We've all heard these voices, these very extreme voices. One side of the voices saying, well, throughout all this Asian stuff, it's just an extra burden. It really is in a way for the, for the path of liberation. We have to find our own way because we are a different culture. We are Western culture. We have uh, particular backgrounds which are our cultural conditioning is different than the cultural conditioning of Asian people. And so some people take this very radical attitude and view, throw it out, it's just, uh, you know, blocking us on the way to liberation. And the other view I just kind of indicated already is to hold tightly on it. Don't let's, let us not change anything. Let's maintain how it's always been, how we know it from, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 50 years ago, 2,500 years ago, at the time of the Buddha. And so, of course, even uh, with these, these extremes, I mean, when I speak like this, it sounds uh, almost ridiculous, we could say, and a bit absurd. And of course, one ejaculates a little bit just to make a point that if we, we might just be leaning to one way or the other a little bit, but even then we have to investigate what is our attitude to the conventions we find ourselves in, you know, how is it actually serving us? In other words, is it serving us on the way to liberation? Does it serve us uh, to experience more and more a sense of freedom in the heart, a sense of ease, and uh, a sense of relaxation in, in within ourselves and also with our in our relationships with the the people we live with and the people we have to do in our daily life. And also this, of course, applies to lay life where, admittedly, your involvements in the work sphere, in the family sphere, and so forth, education, so forth, are much more complex than ours are. Ours have been streamlined. The Buddha streamlined the, the code of conduct and the lifestyle of the monks to those basics, which he thought would be helpful for us 
to move towards liberation. So the vinya we have, the monastic rules, are supposed to be helpful tools. They're not supposed to be to gaggle us or, or tie us up into knots uh, so that we don't dare to make a free movement. But they're supposed to encourage us, yes. If you look at them wisely and intelligently, you can see this is all there to help us to progress, to develop, and, and uh, eventually, if things are going well, we will uh, have maybe at, at least a glimpse of liberation in this life. And of course we don't know how far uh, within the, using the conventions we have uh, this life is take us if we have just a glimpse of liberation, if we have if the result is one of the stages of liberation, the stream entry or one returner, non-return or arhant, but um, I would suggest not to worry too much about that. And I think we've heard from Lampasomedo in particular many times <laughs> that he always encouraged us not to be anybody, not to be a stream enterer or sotapanna arahant or bodhisattva or whatever, but to attend to that what we can know, what we can realize in the immediacy of giving ourselves the adequate attention. And so then that takes us, of course, in the area of the of the, the practices, the methods, the teachings, where we're using um, the combination of the conventions, the Vinaya convention, and the practices to work together, skillfully work together. So ethics in Buddhism, I certainly understand, and always to be in service, in service of the liberation process. It's never totally loose or, or removed from it. It's not, we're not observing ethics, five precepts or eight precepts or 227, just to be good boys or good girls. We'll be using these as frames of reference for reflection so that then uh, we can relax and we can use the practices to propel us um, onwards on the path. Admittedly, especially in monastic life, initially uh, to take up all these observances seem awkward and, and for some people even impossible. Many people would never do it <laughs> in the first place because they think uh, as it, it sounds impossible. <coughs> and uh, you probably heard the story of our teacher, Ajahn Shah, that he at one point thought he was really very um, detailed in his, his study of the Vinaya and he thought, you can't do this. I mean, he was also, of course, studying the other rules outside of the Patimokha discipline. And you can't do this, all these observances. You go mad, just tossing this round in your head, thinking about all these rules. And then he had this very important encounter with this very well-known uh, teacher and arahant in Thailand, Ajamban, who was pointing him to the most important aspect. This is the gist of it. He was probably saying a little bit more, but he said, well, just don't forget, it's all about this, it's all about the heart, the development of the human heart. All these conventions, the regulations and rules and so forth, are here, are there, so that we can uh, develop, we can develop the heart. They're not to dare to tie us into knots and, and provide a constraint which make us unable to walk, to move, and to uh, make the adequate steps that we are uh, at least in this life, if not reaching the goal completely, we're making a few very 
decisive and important steps towards it. So then, of course, when we're speaking of steps towards liberation, we we always ask ourselves, what is the the relationship between conventional reality and and ultimate reality or liberation? How does this how does this um, how do they relate to each other these two aspects some some people rather than getting lost just in conventional reality and clinging and attaching to the convention they attach maybe to the ultimate reality they just say oh you don't need all this just just be mindful and aware and everything is fine everything is 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 perfect you don't need to do much it sounds very inviting, it sounds very wonderful, but of course we all of us, we have to ask ourselves the question, can we do that? Is this real? Does this actually work? Um, because if we have a realistic, or most of us anyway, have a realistic view as our inner processes, the thoughts, the feelings, emotions and so forth, which we experience, uh, then we say, well, yes, I can maybe make the determination from now on, I'll just be aware. But then, very quickly, it's still my reality, I admit, <laughs> get uh, taken over by train of thoughts, by commentaries and sub-commentaries, evaluations. Um, I've learned a little bit in the area of judgments and inner critics and so forth, so that's, <laughs> that's improved quite a bit. <laughs> but still, I can see that there are certain momentums in my mental emotional experience which have a it's almost going on automatic. And, you know, this just seems to be beyond my control. So if it's beyond my control, then what is the resume from that? What shall I do if I, if, I, if I can't control it? Well, maybe I can investigate what gives me that sense that I can't control it, or even that I want to control it. Maybe it's not about control. Maybe it has nothing to do with control. Maybe it has to do with investigation, to investigate the mind state, the emotional state, which states lead to a sense of calm, which states lead to a sense of the heart getting a bit lighter and opener, gets a bit more benevolent, huh? then we're coming into the area of putting wholesome, constructive impulses into the heart. We have the, the teachings on the Brahma-viharas, for example, which can nourish us in that way. And then we, of course, come to the the uh, the teachings where the, medi- the formal meditation teachings, where we putting ourselves in the position of the observer. We witness the whole spiel of consciousness of the mind without interfering. And this is the training we have to do, rather than coming from an idealistic standpoint and say, I sh- I just all I have to do is just be aware and everything's honky dory. No. Say well, you know what, what is going on? How can I we be present for that which is, is happening in my mind? So I'm not controlling. How can I be present for a challenging emotion, for anger, for fear, for jealousy, for you know those kind of emotions which are not very flattering for our ego self? Is it possible? Can I do that, or is it asking too much? Is this again? overtaxing oneself and coming from an ideal standpoint. And so, of course, each and every one of us is invited, we could say, to this, to investigate 
for this for him or herself. We have to see what, what, uh, not only what ability, but what tools we have available to be able to stay present, to just acknowledge and witness, without going into resistance. And of course, the other way is without going into clinging with something wonderful happens in our life, in our meditation, and then we tend to cling, we tend to hang on and want to make it last longer and endure, which also in a way is a resistance, it's resistance in two directions. One is we want to annihilate and resist that which we don't like, we are afraid of, we feel challenged by, and the other is the resistance, we can't allow the change to proceed so that things can as we all know, everything which arises passes away. <laughs> so, uh, but still, we know that all intellectually, don't we? And still we do it. Huh? Mm-hmm. Everything arises and passes away. We still, no, stay here. I like you. I want you to stay longer. I want you to be here permanently in this blissful state, maybe, or this calm which comes over you in meditation. Well, this should now stay. I don't want to even open my eyes. But then your knees start to hurt or your back. And you have to shift and move around. And then, of course, that kind of um, conditioned state, the state of calm or bliss and so forth, change and uh, disperses. And we're back to square one. We're just back to our normal self. And that is not a catastrophe. This is just the way things are. And maybe we can then rather than clinging to some wonderful state, we can just appreciate, yes, we have seen maybe another side of the mind, another side of the heart. We've experienced ourselves in a different way, maybe in a way we've never seen or experienced us before. And rather than saying, no, stay here, this is so wonderful, we can leave it as that and, and trust that everything we have seen or, or, or realized will inform our lives as such. Very often, actually, uh, I've just actually on my way from Italian monastery where I spent the winter, I've been to various places giving two, three retreats, and the questions very often at the end of retreats which arises are what, what people, what they can take with them, going back to their normal life, to their, uh, you know, the complexity of work and uh, responsibilities and so forth. And especially, uh, of course, very often you get this sense when people have had a, what they call a good retreat, which means in most people, I, I was really so calm. And I was, you know, there was very little mental activity, and, and if it arose, I could was immediately there for it and could let it go. My mind was really very in, in a very blissful state almost all of the time. And so then, of course, that can be very inviting um, to um, wanting to do, transport that over into um, the other life. But there is no other life, actually. There's only one life. Even if you, if you go on retreat, <laughs> there's also life. There's life on retreat, and there's life without retreat. And we suffer also in both areas. And so we can acknowledge as soon as we start to put conditions on state, on limited states, on conditioned states, then we will be in a conflict, in a conflict, in resistance, and we have, we experience the sting of suffering. It's quite natural that it happens like that. 
So then I always try to encourage people, don't take anything with you. Let things be as they were. It, it was what it was. And the wonderful states were what they were. The not-so-wonderful were what they were. The terrible ones were what they were. And maybe, actually, you could call a good retreat the one which was really challenging, you know, really difficult. You had a lot of maybe even physical pain. You had compulsive thoughts coming up, which you thought you had kind of resolved years ago. But this time, you maybe peacefully coexisted with them. You didn't resist them. And still, maybe there was an underlying resistance which we quite not aware that it was happening. So we, the way we resist to the way things are have many, many strata, many layers. Some are very obvious and some are very subtle. So on a, say, in a retreat situation, when we give ourselves day in, day out for our full attention, we can also see the more subtle strata of our resisting strategies and holding on to things which we like and having developing aversion, subtle forms of aversion towards the things we don't like. And so not to take anything with them, and sometimes people then get a bit, oh, so on, I want to take something with them, but I want to also, <laughs> I want to tell all my friends, you know, what it's like to have a good retreat, for example. But in that, forget that. Forget uh, wanting to tell and impress all your friends with your wonderful meditation experiences. What will communicate best is just the way you, we are, or the way you are in that respect. That is the best communicator. The way we relate to people, the way we manifest uh, in the different forms of empathic connection with people. Again, that's the, you know, the kindness, the, the compassion, the appreciative joy and the, the uh, equanimity based on our wisdom faculty. If we attend and establish connections in that way with people without having an agenda, without becoming Buddhist preachers, or think we have the kind of particularly exciting news to share, then people will be more open to appreciate that and accept it from us. A lot of the things which happens in human interaction, actually, happens non-verbal. You might have heard this. I think it has even been, been, been scientifically researched. The very little of the, the communication, effective communication, we share with each other happens on the merely on the verbal level. There's many other uh, levels of communication where we exchange uh, informations all the time. There's the voice, of course, the tone of voice, there's the body language, there's the gaze, the subtle way, the, the whole choreography, how we move through life, how we meet another person, how much space we give another person, how attentive we are to another person, how we respond, you know, all these things that is registered in our environment. And so there is always something really worthwhile to trust in. We don't have to have an agenda and think we need to, you know, convert everybody to Buddhism or to the Dharma. But we have to trust that, that what we have known, what we have realized, the Dharma, so in that respect, when I say the Dharma, I mean the truth about ourselves, in ourselves, um, that that will communicate for itself. There's no need to 
take it into the ego domain, the domain of the ego, wanting to impress other people or wanting to, to appear special, or we're letting it very naturally uh, come into human interaction. And then something good happens, something wonderful happens. We will we were surprised by the positive resonances we receive from other people. Maybe not from everybody, maybe somebody will challenge us, <laughs> you know, question us, probe us, and so forth. And then, of course, then we can also prove, can we also stay present and in connection, have an empathetic connection with another person, even when we're challenged. And somebody says, I don't believe you. You're just making this up. But we know, huh? this is all, it's at the end of the day, this is all we have left, only we know within ourselves what we have known, what we have realized, what we have truly seen for ourselves. Nobody can do this for us. Even the Buddha couldn't do this for his, his disciples. The Arahants couldn't do it. Our teachers, Lompo Cha couldn't do it, Ajahn Sumedho couldn't do it, and all the other teachers couldn't do it for us. They could point the way, encourage us, be good examples maybe, but then the task is up to us, you know, how, how do I take all these pointers, all these recommendations, all these wonderful uh, examples and integrate it into my personal life. So. With that, I'd like to close tonight and uh, hope that this will be of benefit to you. Sadhu. <coughs> <coughs>